0: Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. I think I've had the privilege of meeting just about everybody. We're so grateful you're here with us this weekend. It's a, a significant holiday for us. Part of that, especially men, thank you for being a part of this. Um, we believe that when you get the man, you get the family, you get the family, you get the community, you get the community, you get the world. So we purposefully try to target uh, gentlemen because it's often just a missing part of what church is and we want them to be engaged here. So men, way to lead your family to Jesus. When they see that in you, it makes the biggest impact on your kids, your grandkids. It's such a big deal. Before we start our conversation, I want to let you know what's coming up next week. We're starting a brand new series for kind of our summer term here. And uh, it's going to be really powerful. It's going to be really, really practical as well. Have you ever found yourself asking, like, kind of having this hypothetical situation in your head, like, if I knew then what I knew now, how much more different my life would be? And if I could go back, man, I would probably stay away from that person. I would invest earlier. I, I, would, I would have left that party just 30 minutes earlier than I, than I stayed. For me, i look and I'd say, man, if I could go back and I was to marry my wife all over again, I would be even more excited then than I, than I really was, right? We, want, we like to look back on our lives, and we think we, if we had only known then what we know now, that's kind of the framework that the book of Proverbs is built off of. A father speaking to his children saying, hey, here's some wisdom for you. So if you found yourself saying that, you want to be a part of this. This is the kind of series you wish your five-year, ten-year-old, younger self would have listened to. This is the kind of series you wish your kids would listen to because your heart breaks for them as they navigate things. You want them to have that kind of wisdom. So just want to make sure you know about that. You plan to be here with us. We're in a series uh, this weekend called How to Live with Other Human Beings and Not Lose Your Mind. Because we recognize That hurting each other as human beings, that's something that we do most naturally. I don't have to work hard to be selfish. I don't have to work hard to be offensive. Like, it's just in me. It often comes out. And so what do we do? We actually have to make forgiveness a part of our regular rhythms. It's necessary for relationships. It's absolutely critical in our relationship with God. And so that's what we've been kind of looking at. Last week, we said that there were some foundation stones that frame this whole conversation. Think of them like three pillars. And I, I just want to keep this in front of us because often when we start talking about forgiveness, if we're confused on these things, it just doesn't always make sense to us. The first pillar is this, is that forgiveness is not an act as much as it is a habit. In other words, it's not forgive and forget because I'm a human being. I can't forget. So it's not simply an act that I do. It's going to be a habit that I have to come back to over and over again. Jesus said it this way. He said to Peter, listen, Peter, you're not just going to do this like once or twice or maybe even seven times. You're going to keep coming back to forgiving someone. The more they hurt you, the more you actually have to make that decision to forgive them. And I actually find that really helpful because there's been times where I've tried to press into forgiving someone. And I thought, well, I've forgiven them. Isn't it just done? Like, can I just? No, I have to actually choose. I'm gonna choose to forgive them again tomorrow. And I'm gonna choose to forgive them again the day after that. So it's not an act as much as it is a habit. Second pillar is this, is that it's it's an act of the will, it's not an impulse of the emotion. So often we think, I'm gonna forgive when I feel like it. But we're we're like we don't need to be subject to our emotions. This is actually something we have a choice to do. It's not true that we would say, I can't control my feelings. We can choose to act in a certain way, and so that's really important when we talk about forgiveness. And then the third foundation stone, and this is kind of what we're going to hone in on today, is that forgiveness is not so much about our relationship with other people as much as it is our relationship with God. I'm able to forgive others as I'm able to receive that forgiveness from Christ. And so it's really not about what you have done or haven't done to me. It's really about who Jesus is. How I understand that, how I respond to him. And we also have recognized that like forgiveness and hurt does not happen at like there's different layers to it. Not all hurt is the same. And so there's small offenses we may carry in life. It's we talk about like there's a picture of like layers of forgiveness. There's the the small stuff, annoyances every day. Someone leaves the car seat in the wrong position. My kids don't take out the trash. They leave the cereal bowl out. I can't believe they left the Snickers bar in the cars, in the car door seat, uh, compartment there. Things like that annoy us, and if we let that stuff pile up in our lives, here's what happens. All of a sudden, it piles up, and then we just explode. Do you ever wonder, like, man, where'd that come from? Well, it's because if we harbor bitterness, Ephesians 4, if we we let it dock in the, the, the harbors of our heart, then that has the power to just build up, build up, build up, build up. Many times, the conflicts that we engage with aren't big things. They're small things that boil up into big things. And so we have to choose to let go of those small things. This is the small stuff. The second layer is legitimate wounds. Someone's legitimately hurt you. Now, Jesus actually gives us some process to walk through when someone's legitimately hurt you. That He says in Matthew 18 about, you know, you're going to go to them. You're not going to wait for them to come to their senses. Sometimes they don't even know that that's happened. You're going to go to them. You're going to seek to get back to them, not get back at them. And then he gives us some, some processes by which we can seek to reconcile a relationship. So that's the middle layer. And then last weekend we talked about life-altering injustices. So this is where you've been a victim because some th- someone did something to you. Your life has changed. How do we respond to that? If you missed any of that, that stuff's on our website, on our app. You can catch up with that. It's really, really powerful stuff. So this last weekend, here's what I want to do. I want to go to kind of the deepest core of where forgiveness comes from. Where does it start at? This is the seed of forgiveness. And if you're wondering, like, where do I start? I want to I go into this. I know, I know that I have some outstanding things. I just feel that in my heart with somebody. Where do I start? This is where you start. In this layer, you're going to find the motivation to forgive because in our culture, it's like this. Like, you hurt me, you are dead to me. That's how our culture interacts with it. This is the motivation to forgive. In this layer, you're going to understand what the people are like who hurt you. And in this layer, you're going to find the strength to forgive, and it unpacks the secret of forgiveness. Now, before we get going, I just want to run through a little exercise with you. And it's going to feel weird at the beginning, but then I'm going to pull it back around, and then it's all going to make sense. Okay, so, uh, team, will you throw up there that Galatians 5 passage, five nineteen through 21, And I'm just going to read this passage to you. You don't read it out loud. Just hang on to it. Put it in your mind. And then you're going to engage with it in just a second, okay? Paul says this. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. When do you hear that often? Debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a couple places in the Bible where there is a list, things that God would say, hey, in case there's any confusion for you, um, these are things that are bad. These would be sin, sin just being missing the mark. It's it's not going to produce good things in you. This is against my heart, against my mind. God would say that. He says that the deeds or some of the Bibles might say the acts of the flesh are obvious. So when you see these things happening in your life, when they happen around you, it's kind of a no-brainer. When this stuff happens, it's an inarguable inarguable point. So it would be things like immorality, impurity, debauchery, and so on, as it says. So what I want you to do is this. Leave that list up there for a moment, Dakota. And what I want us to do is I want you to look at this list. And I want you in your brain, or maybe you can write it out if you're a note taker, that's fine too. I want you to think through this list. And I want you on a scale of 1 to 10, rank the seriousness of each of these sins. So 1 would be like, hey, yeah, you know, that's probably best to avoid. To 10 is like, hey, this is like death penalty level stuff. Like kick them out of the camp level stuff. So go through and rate the seriousness, how serious is sensuality or drunkenness or jealousy. And don't overthink of it. And some of you are like, yeah, but what's the Greek say? That just means you're a nerd. Don't worry about that. Just get a vibe for what these things are, okay? Now, leave that up there. And as, as, as we do that, as we do that, I want to take us back to the beginning of our conversation. Where this whole topic of forgiveness started at. In Ephesians 4, this is what Paul says. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Now, here it is. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Dakota, go ahead and show that Ephesians 4 passage, verse 32. I'll just leave that up for a moment here. We said that, hey, we need to forgive each other. It's not hard to find in Scripture. We see it all over the place. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So the question, the question is this. How did Christ, how did God in Christ forgive us? If that's supposed to be our motivation, if if I'm a Christ follower and that's supposed to be true about me, how did Christ, how did God forgive me in Christ? And I want to warn you today, we're going to do some major thinking. You're going to have to put on your thinking cap. If you've not had your cup of coffee, you can go get it at any point. If someone's falling asleep next to you, you can just, you know, give them an elbow or slap them in the face or something. It's going to be hard to stay awake maybe today. I'm actually going to uh, pe- uh, teach you an important piece of doctrine this weekend. It's a piece of doctrine. It may feel a little heady or boring, but it actually shows up in major, major ways in our lives. And it's surrounding this phrase, how God in Christ forgave us. And I want to look at this doctrine, I want to apply it to our lives, and we're going to look in the book of 1 John. So in your orange, uh, orange Bibles in front of you, this is page 832. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these. We love giving them away. We have a whole stack of them somewhere, and we love to replenish them when folks take them. 1 John 2. Now, if you have seven of them at home, maybe that's too many, but, um, you know, we want you to have one if you don't have one. First John 2. First John 2. Here's what it says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Say the word advocate. Advocate. With the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. Say atoning sacrifice. For our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says, I'm writing to this so you that you don't sin. And I kind of laugh at that. Like, I'm like, I I know I sin. Like, in in one hour, I will sin. He says, but if you do, there's something that you need to know. He says that we have an advocate. Did you know doctrinally, theologically right now where Jesus is? When he died and was resurrected, he went to the right hand of the throne of God. He's in heaven right next, next to the Father. And he's interceding for the saints. He's advocating for you and I. What is he advocating for? Well, this is, in a sense, a legal, kind of like a courtroom, like a, a lawyer or a witness that's advocating for someone. He's before the Father, and he's saying this. He's saying that person that even right now might be choosing to sin, he is your child. He is covered with my forgiveness. There is no condemnation That person is actually a joint heir, a brother or sister with me. They're a part of the family of God. He's advocating. There is no condemnation. When the enemy comes and accuses, he stands and says, no, that one is covered with my blood. That's what Jesus does. He's the advocate. He says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, we might also say a sinless one. That's important. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's really fascinating. Fascinating. What does it mean that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice? This is this piece of doctrine for us. It's what the Bible nerds call the substitutionary atonement, the atoning sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? Here's what it means it means he paid a debt that he did not owe, and I owe a debt that I cannot pay. Here's the atoning sacrifice. This is actually imagery that goes all the way back to the Old Testament where God wanted people to understand the weight of their own sin because we have a tendency to downplay it. God wanted them to understand the significance of their own sin. And so what he would do is he would say, hey, once a year or so, I want your family to go down to your herd and I want you to pick out a pure spotless lamb, which was their most valuable one and I found out from a documentary I watched that they would try to find the spotless lambs because those are the ones they wanted to breed and to kind of secure their future. I want you to take that thing that symbolizes the security of your future, and I want you to take it into Jerusalem. They would take it into Jerusalem, they would present it before the priest, and then the priest would slaughter this lamb and take the blood from this lamb, and they would put it on the altar of atonement. And, And it was a way of saying, we recognize how serious our sins is, and, and, and it was God's way of saying, you need, to, you need to know that it takes blood to cover up the cost of your sin. That's the backstory. It takes a life to purchase a life. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How am I made right with God? I know God just kind of shrugs it off. It's really not a big deal that you use my name in vain. It's really not a big deal that you stole. You know what, we'll just let that pass. That's not how forgiveness occurs, according to the book of Hebrews. Forgiveness only happens with the shedding of blood. And it takes that seriousness to cover over our sins. And so when you fast forward into the New Testament, it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate substitutionary atonement, the atoning sacrifice. He died once and for all, the book of Hebrews tells us. In other words, my family would take care of our sins this year, but guess what would happen next year? I'd have to do that all over again. And so I would go back to the priest over and over again, and they would eventually get tired of that. Man, why will not you stop sinning, A.V.? Like, we just keep having to kill these lambs. This isn't cool, right? But Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. He did it once and for all. And he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, meaning he didn't have to get up and keep doing this over and over and over again. The forgiveness that Jesus offered happened for all my sins in the past, for all the sins that might happen now, and for all the sins that might happen in the future as well. That's what Jesus did, the atoning sacrifice, the pure spotless lamb, not happening over and over and over again. Now, we said he was the pure spotless lamb. That means that he was sinless. He never sinned. I'm the one that deserves to be crucified. I'm the one that blasphemes God. I'm the one whose heart lusts. I'm the one who steals and hates and and, and is bitter inside. That's me. I deserve to pay the full payment for my sin. I owe a debt I cannot pay. And Christ paid a debt that he cannot, that he did not owe. He never sinned. And he stood in my place to absorb the wrath of God that was deserved for what I did. That's, that's the substitutionary atonement. That's the cornerstone of what we would call Christianity. And most of us would, would get up, we'd come into church and we would basically believe some things about God, at least in a broad sense. That's why you would come into a Christian church rather than a mosque, because we would say that God exists, and Jesus is his son. He is God the son, and if we took a vote and we would say, who believes that Jesus is God? Most of us would raise our hands. We would see that, and if if we said, hey, who believes that most of us, we we recognize that we're sinners. Most of us would raise our hands, because have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I'm a liar. Have you ever Lusted or taking something that wasn't yours It's not hard to convince you That you're a sinner Most of us would recognize that I am a sinner, Jesus is God I couldn't pay for my sins Someone else, Jesus had to pay them for me That's the cornerstone doctrine of the Christian faith Now the problem becomes this The problem becomes that you and I Tend to not accept or receive The fullness of the doctrine Of atonement and I would agree, Jesus is God, I'm a sinner, I'm not perfect, but we don't download the depth of what that means. And there's some ways that we kind of twist it or, or modify it. Here's some things that I wrote down. Many of us would accept comparative atonement. Comparative atonement is like, is Jesus God? Yeah, he's God. Am I a sinner? Yep, I'm a sinner. But it's not like I'm a murderer. It's, it's not like... I've ever kidnapped anybody or I've dealt drugs. You know, it's a comparative statement. Do you need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus? Yeah, sure I do. Sure I do. But they, you know what? They really need some atonement over there. They're here. I'm, I'm just here. It's a comparative atonement. Another way that we might do this is what I wrote down as diluted atonement. Is Jesus God? Yep, absolutely. Am I a sinner? Sure thing. Is your sin a big deal? Well, some of them are, but come on. I mean, lust, lust, that's not a big deal. I mean, you lust, everybody lusts. I mean, have you seen my pastor? I can't help myself. I mean, every, it's not that big of a deal. Is it that big of a deal that I drop an F-bomb? I mean, greed, come on, that's the American way. That's just a part of our culture. That's just, aren't you overreacting? Can't you lighten up a little bit? Do you you need the atoning blood of Jesus? Well, sure I do. But come on, just relax a little bit. The third way I wrote down here is there's self-sufficient atonement. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Am I a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Do you need Jesus? I do. Absolutely. But what I need Jesus for is like the big stuff. And then after that, I got it. So you know what, Jesus, I want the fire insurance. Keep me out of hell. I'm very anti-hell. I'm very pro-heaven. But then why don't you just kind of butt out of my life because I, can, I need you for that, but I'll, I'll take care of the rest of myself. I can be a good, moral person on my own. I'm self-sufficient. Uh, I have great intentions. So let's just leave it at that. Thanks for the help, big guy. I'll see you in heaven. So we're going to look at the substitutionary atonement. We'll say, Jesus is God, absolutely. Am I a sinner? Absolutely. But is the substitutionary atonement a big deal? Yeah, it is a big deal. And how we receive that in real time, it's going to allow me to, it's going to affect me in different aspects. And I, I, I may not take it into the fullness of what it is. Now, it's fascinating how God views the atonement. Let's go back to that little list in in Galatians chapter 5. Dakota, go ahead and put Galatians 5 and just leave it up there until I have you take it off. Remember, we rated this from 1 to 10. The things that we thought were not so serious and the things that we thought were really serious. We'd say, I know it's, yeah, it's it's a sin. It's not so good. But 10 is really, really bad. How does God think about these things? James chapter 2 tells us this says that whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Did you catch that? If you keep the whole law but even one part of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. I'm very pro like 10 commandments. I'm like do not murder, don't covet, I'm all that. But the Sabbath, really? I don't need I don't really keep that. Who keeps the Sabbath? God would say you're guilty of breaking all of it. You break one of it, all 633 are broken. In other words, Jesus would say, no matter how good you are at being moral or religious or well-intentioned, if you mess up even once, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, times. I'm not a murderer. You know, Jesus said, "If if you in your heart say you hate your brother or sister that you've committed murder in your heart? I'm not a murderer, but you've told your spouse, I hate you. You've told your brother or sister, I hate you, I despise you. And how long has it been since you talked to your father, or to your sister, that you're estranged from? I mean, we'd say, hold on times. I mean, it's not like I cheated on my spouse or anything. And Jesus said, did you know that if you, commit, if you lust, you're committing adultery? in your heart, and you're like, well, I only look lustfully at my wife. <laughs> yeah, right. I am the murderer. I am the adulterer. In fact, if I keep the whole law, but I stumble at even one point, I am the greatest sinner that I can identify. And there's no comparative atonement That list, God says all of it has been broken. He looks and he says, hey, the wages of that sin is death. And if you've broken one of them, you've broken all of them. It's all separation from him. You've broken every aspect of the law. Now listen, when God looks at at humanity, he looks at us in the reality of who we are because, remember, he sees everything He knows your heart. He looks at us in the reality of who we are rather than in the rationalizations we place upon ourselves. So when God looks at us, he says, listen, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are enslaved to it. You're not just mistake makers. You are lawbreakers. You're not a people who need a little bit of help and just need to be polished up a little bit. You are dead, and you are in need of complete resurrection. You are a people whose hearts are deceitfully wicked. I don't even know my heart most of the time. Most of the time, I think I'm doing good, but I I probably don't have pure motives 90% of the time because I'm helping somebody, but in the end, I just want them to tell me that that I'm worth it or I've done a good job or I'm just trying to applaud myself for my benevolence and generous disposition. Most of the time, I don't even have pure motives. I am the greatest sinner that I can identify, and I am guilty of breaking the whole of the law. Now listen, it was in that state that Christ came for you. It was not after you cleaned up your act or even after you realized that you even needed him, while you were an enemy of God, while you had your fist clenched, raised to the heavens, while you were still cursing his name and heading in your own direction, it says while we were enemies of God in the book of Romans, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ died for me. And the enormity of God's love can only be understood when we grab hold of the enormity of my rebellion against him. And the depth of the atonement can only be received, be received when I grab hold of the depth of my sin. God did not come just to polish me up and to make a good person a little gooder. He came to make me completely resurrected from spiritual death. Because I am a sinner through and through. And I need the substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not pay. Now, I want you to remember, what are we talking about here? We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about relational interactions with one another. So why is this so important when it comes to forgiveness? Because forgiveness will only be offered at the depth that it has been received. And I'm only going to offer forgiveness to someone at the depth to which I have received it. Listen, so if I think I'm a really good person and I only need Jesus to atone for the really big sins, not the every little day things, then guess what? I'm not going to offer forgiveness that I've decided has crossed a certain line. So I'll forgive you for like, you know, getting on my nerves or not putting the car seat right back in the right position. But since I don't believe I would ever abuse... Since I can't see myself as the sexual predator, I will cut off my willingness to offer forgiveness because I actually don't believe that I need it myself. Forgiveness will only be offered at the depth to which it has been received. And I, in my sin, I am as guilty as the one who sinned against me. And God would look at each of us and say, hey, don't you see it? You are the victim And you are the predator. You are the one that's been sinned against and you've sinned against another. Don't you see that you are the one that was abused and you are the abuser? You are the sinner that you are withholding forgiveness from. But in the depth of your sin, you were were offered forgiveness. But listen, you have to receive it to the depth at which you actually need it. And when we accept our need for forgiveness, we actually receive Jesus' forgiveness even more. Wow, I never realized that I was the murderer. I never realized that I was that pervert. I never realized that my heart is actually quite hateful and twisted. I never realized that I needed to be forgiven for adultery. I, did, I need to be forgiven from, from all of those things and my attitudes of selfishness. I hadn't even seen it. I have to receive that. I have to let the forgiveness of Christ fill me fully, not just partially. And then all of a sudden, this is what starts to happen. When you see that, the depth of your heart, when God gives you that kindness, where finally you you see how broken you are, when that happens, as I receive the forgiveness of Christ, I start to forgive the same way that I was forgiven. And the forgiveness that comes into my life, it just starts to spill over into other people's. And I will start to look and I will say, hey, wait a minute. I was refusing to forgive you. But I am that person. I I was refusing to forgive you because you abandoned me or you got on my nerves or you abused me. But listen, I do that to God every time I choose willingly to sin against Him. And I say, God, I don't care that you see. I'm going to do this anyway. Every time I have a lustful thought, I commit adultery. Every time I harbor sin and I enjoy it, I am the worst sinner that I can possibly identify. And I can forgive you Because I've actually done what you've done. I can forgive you because I'm actually guilty of what you're guilty of. And I can forgive you because, you know what? You and I are actually a lot alike. And I can receive the depth of what Christ needs to do in me, and that spills out. It's fascinating how God made this. This is nuts. This is crazy stuff. It'll blow your mind in order for me to understand the power of forgiving someone else, I actually, I actually have to get in touch with my own brokenness and my own sinfulness. And as I understand the weight of my sin and I start to realize, hey, wait a minute, how can I stand in self-righteousness over you? Christ is saying, listen, you did all this stuff too, and I am the payment of that. I'm the substitutionary atonement, and you needed atonement as deeply as that person who hurt you. And suddenly, I'm motivated to forgive because I've been forgiven. And it's actually not hard to figure out how someone could have hurt you because I'm a lot like that person. And I could have done the exact same thing maybe in a different way. I put it in my notes this way, that the secret of, of forgiveness is actually accepting forgiveness. The secret of forgiveness is actually to accept it at its very core When I think about life-changing injustice, when I think about legitimate hurt, all those little things, it's fundamentally not about my relationship with you. It's about my relationship with Christ. At its core, I'm the offender, and I desperately stand in need of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I need to be forgiven. The more deeply I receive that and the more thoroughly that floods into my life, this is what allows me to have the power and the ability and the strength to step into forgiving others. Uh, as we kind of wrap it up here, I just want to ask a few questions here. This stuff, is, this stuff is hard, and I told you, you're going to need like an Advil after all this. It's hard because the world says, hey, you have a right to be angry, but we're in the same need of grace as everyone else. Let me ask you just a few questions here. Have you ever received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Have you ever received that? The Bible is so crystal clear. This is the starting point. The starting point is me receiving that from God. It's agreeing with God about who he is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm agreeing that Jesus is Lord. I'm agreeing with that heart. I'm also agreeing with God about who I am. That that I'm a sinner and that I need that. I cannot save myself. Christ had to intervene. I have to accept those two things fully. This is who Jesus is and this is who I am. And when we bring those two things into agreement... The, the Bible tells us that's our way to salvation, and I have to repent from my sin. I have to repent of walking in my own direction and turn towards Him. That's what repentance means. Bible says I can just go without. That's all right, it's all good. The Bible says, "Hey, when we repent, we're turning from that, we're heading in that direction. When that happens, here's what happens: We can receive forgiveness from God. We can receive adoption to be brought into His family when we decide on purpose, not just because, hey, this is what my parents believed, or I grew up in the church, or I didn't grow up in the church. Not because any of that, because I chose to do this. When I choose to believe in who Jesus is by faith, and I repent of my sins. We get born again. We get made new. We are forgiven. Jesus stands in the heavenlies and he defends us. He becomes the advocate for us. He's the atoning sacrifice when we believe in him. And I would just encourage you, if you've never done that, you need to do that now. That's the beginning. And there's no magic words. There's no, like, holy water you have to be baptized in. It's a matter of the heart that you repent to him. You're confessing and you're believing and you're born again. That's the beginning point. But after you're born again, there's a second part of that too, and that's that you have, to not, you have to not walk in the shadow of who you were. That you have to walk in forgiveness after that. And so that's the question is, are you walking in forgiveness from your past? Because some of us would look at us, we, we would look at ourselves and we'd say, I'm so glad that God saved me from hell, but I'm that person who had an abortion I'm that person who slept with everything that moved. I'm that person who moved out on my first wife, and I am damaged goods. I'm not that person who needs to forgive someone else. I actually need to be forgiven. Could could Christ actually forgive me of all of that? The Bible tells us that what Jesus does, he atones us fully, deeply, completely. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see there's a good person trying. But they've got all of this stuff in their past. God looks at us and says, you, your sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed upon you. And he doesn't see you off of what you've done. He sees you because of your future glory. I heard Timothy Keller who just passed away to be with the Lord. He's talking about marriage. He says, marriage is not so much a statement about my present feelings for you. It's a statement about what I believe your future glory is going to be. It's profound when I stop to think about that. I'm choosing to marry you not just because of how I feel right now, but because of who I believe you're going to be. Think about how that applies to the marriage of Christ to his church when Jesus says, it's not just who you are right now. It's the glory of who you're going to be. I call you redeemed, and I call you holy, and I call you loved, and I call you righteous. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see the rags of the, of the past. He robes us. He crowns us. He puts his ring upon us. Remember the song we just sang? song we're going to sing again. That's what God does for us. And listen to me. If God can forgive you of that abortion, if God can forgive you of that affair, can you forgive yourself? If God doesn't hold that against you. Can you not hold it against yourself? And if God forgives you for that, and if God can forgive a brother or sister of that, then maybe you can forgive them of that too. And you don't have to hold that against them. Are you greater than God? Are you more just than He? Are you more righteous? Do you sit on a higher plane? We have to accept the depth of who we are and the depth of our brokenness and accept the fullness of that forgiveness and let that choose not the activity of our past but the identity of our future impact how we understand ourselves. Last question is this. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? You've received this forgiveness from God. This is true about who you are but you're not forgiving as you have been forgiven. We have to let the forgiveness of Jesus fill us up the rest of the way so that that doesn't start to define us so bitterness doesn't get a hold of us, so that it doesn't start to taint everything that happens in the future. I am so glad my mom chose to walk in forgiveness from her home life that was oppressive and abusive to her. I didn't find out as an adult until as an adult, just how dark it was for her. I never knew about that as a kid. She did not bring in the, the, the events of the past into her present family. And I yielded the fruit of that because I didn't have a bitter, crazy, angry mom. I had a loving mom who was present who didn't act like she was acted upon. And I'm so glad I have a spouse who doesn't keep a record of longs, wrongs. She would need like a terabyte to fill all of because I'm an idiot. I do stupid things. And I'm so glad I have kids who forgive their father because most of the time I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. And I'm so glad that Christ came to forgive us. that He crowns us with love and compassion when we don't deserve that. And that empowers us, that motivates us, that informs us so that we can forgive as we have been forgiven, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Let's pray, and I'm going to invite the team, they're going to come up, and I want to respond with that song that we just learned, this is what my father's like, always good, always kind, this is who he is, let's pray together. Deep, deep, powerful, meaningful truths, Lord, about the gospel, about who you are, about who we are, Lord, and it's not meant to be like this destructive, oppressive, you're such a horrible worm. But it's when I look at the depths of who I am, and then you would crown me with love and compassion. Oh, God, what a glorious, what a beautiful thing that is, Lord. God, would you empower us, let that inform us? Would that come to mind? Every time we feel the flesh telling us, no, you need to hold this against that person, let bitterness step into your heart, that we would say, no, I am the the greatest sinner I can identify. I need the atonement of Christ. I will extend forgiveness. Let that be true about us, oh God. Let us stand in awe of your mercy and your grace. Let that define us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.